Hey everyone, welcome back to you here in Apologetics. Super, super pumped to join us today to have Dr. Charles Taliaferro. We're going to be talking about the soul and dualism and all kinds of fun questions in that topic. So Dr. Taliaferro, thank you so much for joining me. How are you doing today? Doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm super pumped. And yeah, I'm really pumped to talk about like the soul and dualism because for me, this is a question that I'm super interested in and trying to think about like the mind and things like that. Um, I was always like a little bit of a physicalist growing up as a kid, which is weird because I came out from a Christian household because I was like, I would reflect like my consciousness. That's just my brain. But now that I've like seen all these different views, I'm like, oh, shoot, this is pretty crazy. And there's so much fun stuff to think about. So yeah, I'm super stoked for today. So it's gonna be a lot of fun. Good. So let's just start off. Do you want to talk a little bit about like who you are, what you do, and what got you interested in thinking about things like dualism and the soul? Um, well, I, my, my, to begin with, my last name is often pronounced Talia Farrow. Just as oh, you- I'm sorry. No, that's perfect. And especially when I'm in Europe or Latin America, almost anywhere, I'm Talia Farrow. But in the United States, it's typically Tolliver. It's a Virginian family. It doesn't matter. Call me Carlos or Charles, whatever. <laughs> but um, I became interested in um, really the soul of, as opposed to dualism or philosophy of mind when I was a teenager. And I was very uh, turned on by basic questions like what are human beings? How are we related to God? Where did we come from? And all those really basic questions. And they came along with good and evil. Um, I grew up in, in a, in a way, a, a, an affluent family, but my, my brothers were, I was bullied constantly by my brothers and two older brothers and by, I went to an all boys boarding school. Bullying was just the ticket. And what I loved about philosophy was it involved debate that was nonviolent and people could give reasons for what they believed and what they didn't believe. And um, for me, the question was, uh, who and what are we? Um, I was in a way attracted to physicalism, but uh, I'll say something kind of controversial. It was actually, because I was born in 52, so I'm a child of the late 60s and early 70s. It was actually hallucinogens, things like LSD that made me think there's more to reality than meets the eye. (laughs) So It was actually doing illegal drugs that made me think Physicalism may not be the only, the only reality that's disclosed to us through, say, physics, chemistry, and biology. But um, in any case, as I um, went on, I went to Goddard College, University of Rhode Island, Harvard Divinity School, did my PhD at Brown, and um, a lot of my colleagues were materialists or Wittgensteinians, various other stripes, but I kept seeing through them. I kept thinking, you know, Wittgenstein was so anti-philosophy and that struck me as too quick and easy. And just saying you are the, your brain, well, um, it's obvious that there's correlations between thinking, being conscious and brain activities, but is that actually identity? And one of my professors actually brought some brains into the classroom, my philosophy professor, and uh, he said, I mean, these were, you know, um, 
uh, these are from the psychology department. They were used for autopsy. So it was just brains in vats. Mm. And uh, you're saying, you know, with a live brain or a dead brain, you can't see consciousness or experience ever. And yet he was claiming that's what consciousness is. These brains lack it, but your brain has it. And I raised the question, well, um, how do you know I'm fully conscious? How do you know I'm not a zombie? Or, uh, I mean, if you, if you did a CAT scan um, of my brain, are you going to see my thinking and my consciousness? And he said, uh, no, but that's what it actually is. Why? Well, because there's this dependency. And then I was sort of a smart ass. And I said, well, dependency is not the same thing as identity. And he said, we'll talk about that later. And we never actually did. <laughs> so starting as an undergraduate, I, I had these questions about whether um, neuroscience can really exhaust who and what we are. And I was a philosophy and an English major. And I was pretty convinced that you couldn't answer questions from whether it was Shakespeare or Virginia Woolf or Pinchon Martin or you know, anybody, just by the neurosciences, you had to get into what people are thinking, what they're experiencing. And that requires um, subjectivity, consciousness, and reporting on experiences. And you can't get that just from looking at the brain. Mm. I think that's something interesting to think about is like thinking about like, your brain, um, Dr. Taliaferro, just thinking about like, is that it? Is that all that who Charles Taliaferro is? It's just that brain. Um, it seems kind of weird to say that when you think about these things. Um, and I hope viewers or listeners might have like similar like intuitions. Perhaps you may not. And that's fine. Um, but just thinking about like, is that it? Just the brain? And I think that's where what a lot of the intuition might be pushing us towards something beyond like a mere physicalism. Yeah. And in fairness, um, materialists or physicalists, the, the reason why we distinguish those terms is kind of old fashioned. Materialism, which means matterism, basically, we now believe there's more than matter, there's energy, minimally. So mm -hmm. we use the word physical usually for the, these terms, but um, materialists, physicalists, call them what they will. Um, there are different types. The most uh, common believe a form of identity theory that you are the brain. However, some maintain you are your whole body. These are sometimes called animalists, that you are a physical animal. So not just the brain, but your whole anatomical central state nervous system, all your organs functioning properly and so on. The reason why people go with the brain um, is because you can lose all these organs and you could in principle have a brain transplant. This is not anatomically possible, technologically possible today, mm -hmm. but in theory you could. In which case, as one philosopher put it, you go where your brain goes. Or if you're gonna get a, a brain transplant, make sure you're the donor and not the receiver. Mm -hmm. um, that is, the brain seems to be the seat of consciousness, as it were. It either is your identity or it is um, 
very tightly bound up with it for who you are. Aristotle uh, thought the brain uh, was a kind of like a refrigerator. He thought it cools your blood down. Hmm. Uh, most philosophers, even in the ancient world, Plato, Galen, the uh, ancient physician, believes that the brain is the organ for, for thinking. So when you, the criterion of death is no brain activity. Hmm. That happens, uh, according to contemporary medicine, except that in most, if not all countries, you are no longer there and it's a corpse. Now that's still controversial. Some people will contest that. In fact, Jews, observant Jews, um, hold that as long as your heart is beating, you are still there. Hmm. That's why in New Jersey, observant Jews who, have, who are brain dead, as long as the heart is beating, that patient is still alive. But if you're a Gentile, if you're a Christian or non-Jew, you're dead if it's flat in page G readings. Hmm, that's super interesting. So I'm curious then, like, thinking about these things, where does the idea of the soul come from? Because um, obviously people have been thinking about, like, the brain and the soul, even back to, like, Aristotle, as you've been talking about. Um, so where does this idea come from, the idea that we might have a soul? Well, the way you're putting it may have a soul is interesting. Um, most of many of us would who believe in some form of dualism would say that you are a soul or you are okay. a person or you are a subject or mm -hmm. a mind. They, they might use like five different terms. Here. Yeah. Having a soul suggests a broader definition of soul, like having a moral character. And that way you might still be conscious and I lost my soul. I, I compromised my friend yesterday. Uh, my soul is lost. But, but technically in the tradition, going back to Pythagoras and Plato and Socrates, so um, the reason why people believe in the soul in a sense is that they believe that um, they exist as thinking, feeling beings and existing over time. Now that sounds kind of weird. That's, I didn't even mention soul. But if you believe, you know, I, Socrates, or I, Zach, you know, and the same person before I ate dinner and, and now talking with Talia Farrow, um, you believe that you're a subject, you endure over time, you have thoughts, feelings, sensations, you are the same person you are now as you are now. So it means you endure over time. And then um, people ask the further question, well, what is this subject or soul we call Zach? And then we can say, is it that body that I'm seeing there or a part of it? Or is it something in addition? And the kind of dualism I accept, I call in many places, but this never goes anywhere, but I call in many places integrated dualism. The idea that I'm looking at you, you're looking at me, when we are healthy uh, and integrated, to see you and me acting with each other is to see you and me acting with each other. But that can become disintegrated due to all kinds of brain damage, all kinds of things. In those cases, you might just be looking at a shell of me. Or even ethically, if I'm putting you on, 
I'm not who I say I am. I'm in a way hiding behind, I'm using my body and so on as a mask, something like that. So integrative dualists believe that there's more to you than your body, but there's in a sense not less of you than your body when you are actually integrated. But once, going back to death a little bit, once you have irreversible brain activity, loss of consciousness, I would say I'm no longer looking at Zach, I'm looking at a corpse. I'm looking at his remains, his body. And that's actually, if you go back to almost prehistory, it's that intuition that really fuels what we call dualism today. Keep in mind that where dualism was not invented until the 1800s. Hmm. It's a very late term. But if you go back and you look at um, prehistoric remains and people burying others with grave goods like spears and things like this, it's who knows, but it's probable they believe that there's more to life than the grave, that these bodies they were burying were going to be either resurrected or revived or the soul needs these things. And um, most of us, I submit, believe that when I've seen, um, I've been present only when four people have died. But when I did, it, it became evident to me, and I'm sure I'm not alone, this is an evident thing, is that I felt like, uh, Amy was no longer there. I was that's her body. And so I we didn't cremate Amy. We didn't bury Amy. We buried her remains. And I think it's that intuition or insight or um, appearance that also kind of fuels the sense that there's more to you. Um than as it were meets the eye. So in your view then, when we think about like the nature of our body, it's not really who we are. Um, in a sense, it's kind of like, almost like, maybe it's a little too crude, but thinking about it as almost like the puppet where our soul is maybe pulling the strings when things are working perfectly um, in like a functioning sense. Obviously when you have like a traumatic brain injury or things like this, it's gonna totally um, damage your ability to like mentally um, function and like carry out these certain functions your soul may have. Is that like a way of thinking about um, your view of the soul? Um, the thing I would correct there is I would say the puppet imagery gets at it perfectly. That is in a case of where you've broken down in some ways, um, you wind up having to treat your body like a puppet. Now, mm. Oliver Sacks in his book, probably his most famous one, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat, he has a chapter called The Disembodied Lady. And he refers to a woman who lost motor control. So when she wanted to raise her left hand with her watch on it, she had to kind of, like almost like she's drawing a puppet string. Mm -hmm. so you and I, who are healthy, can act without that puppet sense. The one way, one way to get at the puppet imagery is this. Let's say I have a puppet and, and Jill has a puppet and we have both puppets kiss each other. Okay, did I just kiss my wife? I would say no, my puppet kissed my wife's puppet. <laughs> so in that sense, 
people can be like puppets. You know, in the case of really dysfunctional sex, uh, where you're having sex with somebody you don't know, and yeah, it's like you're both puppets. You know, you you don't even know who you're kissing, but insofar as you know who you are and you're kissing the love of your life, oh, let's say it's not Jill, because she's my wife. Uh, let's say you're kissing um, Pat. We'll use a non-gender specific term. If you're kissing Pat and she and you are fully embodied, you are not puppets. You are actually kissing. It's a mind-body integration. But if things are dysfunctional, either ethically or neurochemically, then it can be like you're kissing the container of your wife. Let's say your wife became paralyzed and you kiss her lips, but she can't respond. That's like her body has become like a container. She's still conscious, but can't act as herself. And so we can become puppets. We can become containers. But when we are, and when we die, we might no longer be here, you know, as a body. But um, under healthy conditions, um, you're together. Mm. So when we're thinking about um, when the brain and the mind are ordered and like in a good, like they're functioning properly, something like really strong and beautiful can happen. But when the brain is disordered or it's like crazy or there's been traumatic injuries that's when a lot of these um examples may come in where something um may not really be you when you're interacting um in certain functions uh that's right the philosopher one philosopher said um there's a difference between my hand went up and i raised my hand now the difference is your hand go, could go up because you're you're in an epileptic seizure you know yeah. Um, and your body could be acting in all kinds of ways you don't intend. So in a sense, uh, yes, when things are disordered and unhealthy, um, you can cease to function as a fully embodied being. My great-great-uncle, apparently, never met him, is several generations back, but he lost all his feelings, he could only move his hand. And uh, he, he wrote these psalms with his hand. They were pretty depressing. <laughs> but he, in a way, became like, he could no longer communicate with his eyes and his mouth and his ears. He only could communicate with his hand. So our identity can become extremely small, depending on the scope of our knowledge our emotions, our, responsive, our responsiveness. Mm. Okay, yeah, that's super helpful. So I'm wondering then, some people may wonder, like um, Dr. Galifero, some may think, uh, maybe like skeptics of any sort of like dualism would say, hey, we have this really nice story of a physical world that we could say could evolve in some sense. Um, it seems like, like, why do we need a dualism to explain anything? Like, what is dualism doing? Um, like, why should we think that we have any reason to have a soul if there's a simpler view at hand? So I'm leaving it to you. Like, wh why think that we should have a soul um, for the skeptics here that may be listening? Well, I would say that you, you might, um, to the skeptics here, think about what are you most 
certain about. And I would say you, you probably, on reflection, most certain of what you're thinking and your experiences and your concepts. So um, you have a concept of the physical world. You have a concept of what it is to be a body. These are all your concept of things. And we are, I would say, much more confident in what you might call mental causation than we are a physical to physical causation. By mental causation, I mean when you as a conscious subjective being reason uh, from A to B, whatever A and B is, I'm reasoning that if I'm talking to Zach, I'm talking to Zach. That's a mental process. The one thought causes the other. And um, if I say, uh, you know, I'm, I'm watching a, um, a electromagnetic event um, and I'm confident that I'm watching the same event over time. The one thing that has to be certain is that you know that you are a self observing the same event over time. So this is the way I might reverse things or challenge some of your listeners or viewers. And that is, what is the simpler story? The simplest story, just as we begin to think about anything, is to realize that we're thinking. You can't think about anything without thinking. I mean, that's got to be absolutely fundamental. If you're not sure you're thinking, you're thinking. <laughs> because not being sure of something is to think. So thought and consciousness is most fundamental. That's on first base as far as what we can know about anything. Mm -hmm. And um, even the concept of everything is a concept. And so I would say that um, what we can ask ourselves is, uh, yeah, where did we come from and, and so on? What are we made of? Um, what does this tell us about reality? But I would say that based on what we know in our first person and with each other, is that we know that there's consciousness and thought. So it's more of a question of how do we fit that which is non-mental and non-physical like the physical world into the mental world? How do, we, how do we form an idea of what physical causation is? Because you can't think about physical causation without mental causation, without the activity of thinking. Mm. So my own, as a Christian theist, I believe there's reasons to believe that God exists, and um, there's a reason to believe that the cosmos exists, and the cosmos is highly complex. And we need to not be too haunted by the word dualism. Dualism literally, literally means two-ism. I think we're faced with actually two questions, speaking of two, um, is are you a monist? meaning mono, you think everything is just one kind of thing? Or are you a pluralist? You believe there are different kinds of things. Now, a materialist or physicalist believes there's one kind of thing. They have to fit it into however you define physical. Most people define physical as that which is the result of the physical sciences, physics, chemistry, and biology. Um, is that all there is? And for, there are various arguments to the effect that there's, there's more. 
for readers that are new to this, I would say if you think there's more, the, the label to consider is pluralism. There's a plurality of things. Maybe there's subjectivity, consciousness, feelings, emotions, reason, desire, intentionality. Mm. Where, I mean, you can ask, where do those come from? Well, there are myriad of possibilities. One is they came from that which is non-conscious, non-feeling, non-mental, non-rational, non-purposive. Another is to believe that it's from some overriding purposive, conscious, teleological, that's purposive reality. Mm. Or some combination, and there are other possibilities you know, how long is your show? You'd have to really sort. I said the two big um, contenders philosophically are some form of secular naturalism, which often turns out to be materialistic, or some form of um, theism. Mm. Yeah, I think that's super helpful. I really like your idea of like trying to think like, hey, what's first, mind or matter? Because um, it really presses the issue. Because I think a lot of people would want to say, like, yeah, like, I think before I am, that seems like the natural way of thinking about things. Um, and if that's true, well, then there's mind. Like, we have mind before we have matter. And, like, thinking about how we know uh, what's most fundamental in our own existence. And if not, then I like how you press, like, well, what can we really know? Like, if we're not going to say, like, if we can't say, I think before I am, how are we going to know anything else about the world? How can we make any other kind of, like, claims or predictions or things like that? And I think that's a really great way of, like, advancing the issue of showing what seems like to be like fundamental in thinking about um, how we understand the world. I agree. I think, I mean, this goes back, uh, you're referencing in you know, public Descartes here, I think therefore I am, mm -hmm. but uh, it goes back to Augustine and really even the ancient philosophers wrestled with this, but it strikes me that self-awareness is absolutely foundational. You philosophers who try to supplant the certainty of self-awareness wind up with very, very peculiar hypotheses. For example, one philosopher said, um, you shouldn't say, I think, you should say, this thing thinks. Mm. But if you reflect on that, that's an extremely odd way to put it. First of all, the word this and that, they're indexicals, this and that means that which I'm drawing attention to. Look at look at this, look at that. I'm trying to get you to look at something. But that requires there being a subject mm -hmm. and there being somebody who listens and can attend and self-aware. So for me to say, look at that body and this body, you wouldn't know what to do unless mm -hmm. you that I am this. Or I, I, I am Charles, or I am, I am. And then as you can ask, am I Charles or Zach? You can ask them further questions. But self-awareness is, in my view, absolutely indispensable. Mm. I think you're right. I think you're totally right that self-awareness is super important and it's really indispensable. So I'm wondering then, we talked about, you talked about monism, which is super interesting idea. There's this kind of like one kind of thing. Um, and somebody say it's just the physical thing. We kind of, I think we kind of highlighted a problem with that of saying, hey, like what comes first, minor matter. But another problem I think that, or question to look at is like, what about something like idealism? What, what's wrong with someone who says, 
yeah, sure. Like there's one kind of thing, but it's just mine. Like we don't need that physical um, stuff out there. So what do you think the problem would be with like some sort of like idealism, Dr. Talitero? Well, I, I think that um, ultimately we have to fall back on coherence, like making the, the most, uh, the best explanation of reality uh, that's coherent and self-consistent. And some worlds are thoroughly mental. I believe that dream worlds are plausibly regarded like that. Mm. In a weird way, fictional worlds are like Tolkien's Middle Earth. It's not like it has a specific location. It's the creation of a mind. It's a mental world in which you can enter and leave and, and the like. But I would say that um, it is evident on reflection, and it's the best explanation, that there are mind-independent things like bodies and space exists. I actually believe in space, uh, not just spatial objects, mm -hmm. but space is that which, in which you find spatial objects. And... Um, time exists. Uh, idealists do not ex deny, most idealists don't deny the existence of time. And most of them have to take the existence of space seriously. But what the materialist gives you is, uh, what material objects give you is a public sphere in which we interact. Now we can interact mentally in a mental world, like as in fictional stories or, or philosophical theories. We can interact on that plane. But for you and I to interact now, there has to be auditions, like speech, speech acts, ways in which we can read each other's emotions through body language and um, communication work in order, um, in order to work or make love or go to sleep or to eat. It's a psychophysical activity. If the psyche isn't there, you're not gonna be a person. You'd be a corpse or a zombie. But if the physical isn't there, it, you get close to being in a dream um, or in a, an illusory world, like as in the matrix, something like that. Yeah. Okay, so you think then like one of the big problems with idealism is that it seems to like um, in the same way like physicism is going to have a hard time explaining the mental world and like it doesn't really make sense of these experiences the same way like idealism is going to have a hard time making sense of like a lot of the like physical experiences and like things we think about the world um, like space or like our sensations and feelings things like that not saying that like it's impossible for it to explain but just like it seems to be kind of obscure in thinking about how idealism could explain a lot of the things we take to for, take the existence like real like physical objects out there in the world. I think so. I mean, when you look at um, Bertrand Russell, who's entertaining idealism and his problems of philosophy, and he's courting idealism. He says, well, you know, you can say you really enjoyed your dinner tonight, but didn't you really just enjoy all these tastes and, and so on? But actually, you, you also... And, the process of digestion, and there's the process of physical and athletic, um, psychophysical interaction and motor control and um, the facility it makes a healthy body. So I think that it's really hard to deny a more holistic approach to the animal world 
uh, Bertrand Russell talks about his cat being a bundle of sensations. But that's, that's absurd. I think to think of dreaming of your cat as a bunch of sensations and memory fragments, for sure. But um, I really think I'm a common sense philosopher. And I think that common everyday sensibility would have a hard time really vindicating the idea that you are all and only what we see before you and will be analyzable um, in terms of physics, chemistry, and biology. Moreover, we'd be hard pressed to say you are only that which is mental, desirous, and appetitive, or to reduce or to translate your what you take to be your bodily life and interaction with your friends and families and neighbors, the Ukrainians and the Russians, to be kind of um, not have a physical surge to it. When you become a corpse, it's because there's a bullet that goes through your vital organs and you fade. That doesn't mean, if, if dualism is true, that you are thereby annihilated. It follows rather that your body is destroyed or biologically dead. But it doesn't tell if dualism is true that you have ceased to be. Okay. Yeah, that's super cool. Um, so maybe let's talk about like some of the problems then that come up with dualism. So one of the things is we have the interaction problem, which says like, hey, if we're gonna say like there's like this purely physical stuff that isn't like doesn't have like mind-like quality out there in the world. And then we have this like uh, mental stuff, this mind that's like mental, it's not physical. How do they like interact? How do we make sense of like them interacting? Because it seems like there has to be some interaction because you know, mental states may change because of physical states like brain trauma. Like how do we explain this? This idea of like a mental thing interacting with a physical thing. It just seems like they might be like incompatible or like different arguments be, be brought up along these lines. Yeah, I think it's a fundamental datum of experience that is it's obvious that, uh, you know, I had a professor at NYU who said, I can establish the truth of the falsehood of dualism, just take a, a bottle of uh, scotch and drink it, and you'll lose consciousness eventually. That doesn't prove anything. You know, it just follows this, this correlation between the mental and the, phys the physical and the mental. But I would say, um, another professor of mine said, look, the fact that you all, my students showed up on time in class, is an example of the mental impacting the physical. I was at a conference at Harvard uh, two years ago, and this uh, philosopher from New Zealand said, I believe that the mental controls the physical because how else am I gonna explain how this body got from New Zealand to Cambridge, Massachusetts? I, I, I thought that this was a conference. This was, I've got a paper to read. I thought through the paper, I got, a seat and now I'm talking to you about what I'm reasoning about. This is, this cannot be explained by causes that have, don't have an irreducible reference to reasons. Hmm. This is really important. Professional philosophers who are very sophisticated talk about the causal closure of the physical. But if by physical, and P David Pompano is big on this, he, he says, oh, I accept mental causation. All I also accept is that there's a sufficient physical explanation that makes no reference 
to the mental that can explain it. But on that view, this uh, Kiwi, this guy from New Zealand, got to Cambridge, Massachusetts, boarded a plane, and came here on the basis, he claims, for reasons. He got paid an honorarium. He's actually one of the highest published uh, psych psychologists in English. And so he got paid for it. Now, that's more than a physiochemical reason. In fact, we can't say, oh, I know what you really did. It's something else. It's kind of like saying, you know, I'm drinking water and somebody says, no, you're not. You're drinking H2O. Well, wait a minute. Um, if that explanation is meant to take away the fact that I'm drinking water, a colorless, odorless liquid that provides me with resuscitation um, and uh, what is the word I want? Um, keeps me, um, I don't know, from passing out. <laughs> um, it's that you you still have water, you still have lightning, even when somebody says, oh, it's mean kinetic energy. But if you take away the fact that lightning looks bright, then you're no longer explaining lightning. You're explaining the cause of lightning. Okay. So hydrogen and oxygen go into making up the macro liquid water, which, which you need to remain hydrated, that was the word I wanted. Um, and it, a reductivist like um, Pompano wants to just go, let's go with H2O and forget water. Let's just go with mean kinetic energy and forget the way lightning looks. But this is like when Goethe said about Newton, Newton's work on color, which is very, very important. Goethe said, you know, Newton's work on color is great. He did everything except explain how colors look. Mm. You know, what does green look like? And we got a description of a prism, got a description of um, light. We can think about whether it's a wave or a particle and how it behaves and so on. But you're going to leave something out as long as you don't get to how does it look to particulars. It's like, does a tree, when a tree falls in a forest, does it make a sound? If by sound you mean sound waves, yes. But if you mean by sound auditions, like things, creatures here, um, you don't have auditions unless there's a squirrel or chipmunk or a person that can actually hear something. Mm. That okay. Yeah, go. No, I was going to say, so like, it seems like you're trying to, like, one of the things you're trying to get at us here, like, hey, the physicalist still has, like, this really big problem. Like, even if we're going to say, like, sure, like, everything um, in the interaction of the mind was just physical, we still, like, we're still missing something. There's still something missing, kind of getting back at this, like, with colors. Like, you could tell the whole story of how um, particles in the ocean interact, but you're still missing something with that description without actually talking about um, the story of the color blue, which is something that is experienced. You can't really put that in like a scientific like paper or anything to color blue. Yeah, it's called, um, it's sometimes called the knowledge argument or the Mary argument. Mm -hmm. It was um, actually, it, it goes back to Bertrand Russell. It goes back to Goethe, but it's often given to an Australian named Frank Jackson who changed his mind. It's called Mary 
uh, a great physicist who lives in a black and white world. And she learns all about red, but she doesn't see red until she goes outside of the lab and then she sees a rose and goes, did she learn something new? And in the knowledge argument, I would say she did learn something new, namely what red looks like. Mm. And uh, Russell, who's born in the late 1800s, died in the 1960s, um, he adopted every possible position. So, you know, he, and he's known as an atheist, but he was actually an agnostic. He claimed, I don't know there's no God. I just don't know. And mm -hmm. in any case, he said that um, his example was motion. You can describe motion um, mathematically, but that's not going to get you the feeling of motion like when you're seasick on a boat in a storm. It's going to feel certain ways that you you it, that's going to be different from a mathematical representation of matter and motion. Mm -hmm. Okay, so one more objection I'd love to like look at with you is like the idea of like the mind's dependence on the brain. Like one of the things when I first started looking at like the soul and consciousness and like things like this, a common argument from people that would say like, hey, dualism is false, like the mind's dependence on the brain. So you could talk about like things like car crashes or any sort of like traumatic brain injury where we're going to have the mind, um, it's going to be transformed um, because of this like depend. Well, maybe that's obviously we may define it, but we may word it differently but like there, there's something different in how that person is going to interact with the rest of the world um after like a traumatic brain injury so if it seems like if the mind's dependent on the brain well maybe the brain just like gives forth the mind is maybe like how this objection goes so how would you respond to like mind brain dependency yeah i'd say it's to i think i'm repeating myself but it's it's an evident fact that there's interaction so you mentioned a crash but let's take driving I don't. I think there are some of us that might drive kind of automatically because you're so habituated. You know the way to your middle school. You just get in the car and suddenly you're there. But to to explain any fundamental intentional purpose of activity requires observant, self-aware, evident facts of intentionality. Mm -hmm. When I, I do an act, I don't make indefinitely many sub-acts. Like if I'm writing my signature, Charles, I don't go, write the C. Okay, we're almost done now. Go for an A. You just intend to write Zach. Mm -hmm. uh, but without an intent to undertake this, uh, there's no purely physical description and explanation that would account for it as an action, as opposed to mere behavior. It does strike me that we can become addicts. We can also simply react to um, events around us to shock, you know, which, you know, or in a sports game, you turn off a lot of intentionality, you just intend to play the game, but when the ball, basketball comes to you, you're not thinking, here comes a basketball, reach out both paws and catch it. No, mm -hmm. you're just playing basketball. But if there was no overriding purpose of intention, um, then it strikes me that you've ceased to function as a person.
-hmm. like an alcoholic, a severe alcoholic, it seems to me, yeah, is intending to go to the store and to buy or steal some vodka to get inebriated or to satisfy um, an addiction. But um, it's, it's not become a choice anymore. Intentionality mm -hmm. and choice um, involves being able to have more than one possible future. You know, yeah. either to drink or not to drink, and then to elect to abstain, to try to build up a character um, to become a non-alcoholic, non-drunk, say, non-active, non-smoker, you know, mm -hmm. on the cigarette. Yeah. It's a, it's a real, it's a, it's a total way in which we, as it were, can give birth to, it, this is big language, but Gregory of Nyssa used it in the fourth century, where you can become your own parent over time. That is, you can, as it were, give birth to perhaps through grace, you know, in a Christian context, um, of a new self, dying with Christ, becoming renewed. Um, a kind of dying to old habits, um, narcissism, self-interest, really coming to care compassionately, going outside of yourself, really becoming a, a new, at least personality, having a new character. Okay, let's close on something fun. Thank you for that. Uh, so in the beginning of the show, I, it came back up to my mind. You talked about the idea of like, so say that like, I need a brain transplant and luckily your brain is just like chilling. It's ready to go. Um, you plug, you plug your brain into my body. So I'm wondering like who exists now in, in my body? Is it you? Is it me? Is it a combination of us? What's going on there in this, this idea? Yeah. Most people, physicalists and dualists would say, you go with your brain. So I would, I would now have, Let's say if, if Zach's brain had been hollowed out and there was a brain cavity and mine had been placed in there and it was successful, that's where I would be. Um, however, the um, that's that's interesting. However, an, an additional is interesting fact is due to a, um, a, a, a brain split. Evidently, uh, it's possible, Nagel and others, brain bisection, that persons have been known for their right uh, brains, cerebellum, to die and their left brain to continue on and to actually continue the same memories. Say, I'm Zach, I went to kindergarten, I'm a middle school teacher, I'm running a podcast. And it's also possible for the other side of the brain to die. And philosophers, Parfit, Swinburne, Lots and lots of people in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and even even 2022, have wondered about this. What would happen? And I'm kind of with Swinburne here. I think what would happen is there is a real fact of the matter. Let's say if it's Talia Farrow's brain being split, put in one brain cavity, put in another. It's going to be a real fact, even though no one could tell. Mm -hmm. uh, of Talia Farrow being one or the other. Okay, so this has been so fun. Thank you so much. And there's so much things Thank I need to think about. Like I even think about like, I wanna think about like split brain stuff. So like say like half my brain and half your brain come together, like who exists and it's something I need to think about uh, even tonight. So thank you so much for coming on. Any like last thoughts or things you wanna say, Dr. Talia Farrow, before we wrap up here? 
Yeah, there is. Um, yeah, the whole idea of brains actually coming together, two halves is called sometimes, um, well, fission or fusion are terms that could be used for either taking them apart or brought together. And that is um, philosophy is never completed in a single conversation. So in um, the Revolutionary War, there was a great newspaper that was concerned about um, Federalist papers. The motto of the paper was to be continued. And so I think that a conversation like ours is one that's, it can't be complete, it's to be continued. And so I look forward to continuing it, whether it's with you or somebody who's listening or somebody else, so to be continued. To be continued, I like how we're wrapping up. So thank you so much, Dr. Taliaferro, for coming on. Um, there's a link down below in the description to your book, so you can check that out. And yeah, thank you everyone for coming in. If you're new, I encourage you to subscribe, leave a like, all that fun stuff. And if you value our content, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com, so you can apologize. Support means a lot. So yeah, thank you so much, Dr. Taliaferro. It's been an absolutely amazing conversation. Okay, thank you, Zach. Thank you, everyone.